This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It's a great pleasure to be here today, and uh, I would like to congratulate the directors of CARTA for an amazing organization, and I've really enjoyed coming to the seminars over the past 10 years. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. So today I've been tasked with the uh, job of providing an overview on ancient DNA research. And so I will attempt to do that. Uh, and really, ancient DNA is a toolbox. It's a way that we can try to pull genetic information from the past and make inferences about evolutionary history. Um, and it's a field that's about 35 years old and is really standing on the shoulders of technological advances, particularly initially with PCR, and it was very much stimulated by that work. The first ancient uh, archaic human DNA uh, was published in 1997, and in that paper we reported the results of mitochondrial DNA. We very laboriously PCR'd small fragments, put them together, and compared it to modern human variation. And at the time, we concluded that it was very unlikely that humans interbred with Neanderthals. Now, if you've been following the news, I'm sure you know that we were uh, not right. <laughs> and, uh, and that's actually what's so exciting, right? There have been so many technological advances that have enabled us to look at complete genomes and put together a more complete story. And so the Neanderthal Genome Project really um, pushed a lot of these technological advances. And uh, in the last 10 years, um, in addition to next-generation sequencing, methods of really pulling out tiny fragments of DNA. So as opposed to long reads, like Evan was talking about, we're looking at really short reads. And a lot of the methods we were using were actually pulling, we're actually losing a lot of the shortest fragments that we now can recover. And we can take that DNA, and when we extract DNA from a sample, we're extracting all the DNA. Uh, and what we do is we make a library. And this library has various indices and um, tags on it that let us then amplify it, um, almost immortalize it. And we can then use our library and sort of go fishing. And we go fishing using probes that capture the DNA we're interested in. That might be a whole genome. It might be a pathogen. Uh, and then to those little baits, we can attach magnetic beads. And then, through the beauty of magnetism, um, pull that DNA to the side of the tube and wash the DNA that we're not so interested in away. So this enrichment really has fostered our ability to address questions uh, about human population history over the last 500,000 years now. Uh, after enrichment, we have sequencing. And I should also say that advancements in bioinformatics have been equally important. Um, so we're now using methods of machine learning to try to make inferences about population history. So what do we know for certain? Um, because of the Neanderthal Genome Project and subsequent discoveries, 
We know that in Eurasia, archaic humans had pretty small effective population sizes uh, and more inbreeding than we see in modern human or in humans today. Interbreeding was more common than we thought, right? So we were incorrect from the mitochondrial perspective because once we look at the full genome sequence, we can actually see evidence for interbreeding among different populations. We also see that there were some uh, adaptive alleles that uh, are the result of gene flow from archaic humans. So in 2010, with a low-coverage genome from a Neanderthal, we were able to see this, this, that inbreeding did in fact happen and make estimates of population divergence and uh, also uh, look at, get some idea of what genes perhaps distinguish the lineages. Now, one thing that has been really amazing is that uh, from Denosova Cave, we have both Neanderthal and Denosovans. Who are they, right? Uh, who are really providing fascinating information about um, past human evolutionary history and essentially surprising us about it uh, almost daily, I think. But um, so here you can see um, that this particular cave has really amazing preservation. And what's great about it, it's, it's allowed us to get uh, high coverage genomes. Now, 1x coverage, there's a lot of problems about making inferences that you're statistically confident in. But once you have a 52x, a 30x depth of coverage, so you, the number of sequencing reads on average at a site is very high, and so your confidence statistically is, is higher. And so this enables you to really make much more sophisticated analyses about population history. So for example, at Denosova Cave, you can see here comparisons of genetic diversity along chromosomes. And what you'll notice is the French, there's a lot of, uh, as your sort of average European here, uh, there's a lot of diversity as you compare uh, along the chromosome. Denisovan, there's still some, but less. But you'll notice the Neanderthal in particular has quite a few stretches that, where there's very little to no diversity. And this is telling us that, that inbreeding um, or population sizes were much smaller. Um, so these are some of the many fascinating things that have come out of the genome projects um, related to Neanderthals and Denisovans. Um, we've also learned a lot about population history in the last 10,000 years. And um, the place we probably know the most about is Europe. There have been a, a huge number of studies. We now have, I think, hundreds of genomes from ancient Europeans. And what this has shown us is that um, there's been a lot more gene flow and replacement than we expected. So early uh, populations in Europe represented on this map the hunter-gatherer populations, which would have been represented by the uh, blue color, and they actually don't show uh, 
individuals just from that group. But once the farmers come in, you'll notice that you get almost a, a re replacement in some areas. However, this, this ancient hunter-gatherer ancestry sort of makes a resurgence after a bit, probably gets pushed to the edges, but then through interbreeding, uh, gets mixed into the European gene flow, uh, gene pool. Then you see the Yamnaya, these Eurasian steppe populations, coming in in the Bronze Age with a very strong signature um, that persists today. And I think that was very surprising to many people. We also learn a lot about uh, patterns of adaptation over time. And I think um, you know, people often ask, oh, so humans have stopped evolving, right? And this is one of the major problems, of, well, there's many, with the Paleolithic diet, right? It assumes that we haven't changed since the Paleolithic. And in fact, we have. <laughs> so one of the examples would be uh, lactase persistence, right? The ability to digest milk. And so this is a, uh, a cheese strainer from um, 5,000 years ago in Poland. And, um, you know, what you see over time is that this sort of uh, red color, this is the lactase persistence allele. It's very low early on, but then increases quite rapidly. We also see what looks like shifts in patterns of pigmentation. There's some estimates that perhaps early Europeans actually had darker skin uh, and blue eyes, and that the skin color lightened through time. There's some debates about this because the inference of past alleles is often very difficult, what the phenotype would be. And so um, that's one of the challenges, of course, is to, to try to infer function and then phenotype. Um, we also see, of course, strong selection at genomic loci involved in the immune system. That's a constant pressure. Uh, and the new methods in uh, ancient DNA analyses are also allowing us to look at human pathogen interactions. This is a very vague statement, and that's kind of for a reason. Uh, and that's because we often find what we don't expect. So. This slide could be called the Black Death and the White Plague because um, you know, people assumed that the plague didn't really appear until the, the first great pandemic, the, um, the, uh, the Justinian Plague. But in fact, we've learned that it's much older, and we can actually see the different changes in the pathogen. We also surprisingly learned that while plague is older than we thought, TB is younger than we thought. And it was actually brought to the Americas via seals. This was not expected. So what are we not sure about? A lot. <laughs> was there hybrid incompatibility? How much gene flow was there? Um, and what about populations in places where we don't have good ancient DNA evidence? So we also know that there have been major shifts, perhaps, in other parts of the world. Uh, since the Neolithic, and how much is this true outside of Europe? And also, you know, how do the patterns of pathogen, um, how, how do pathogens change pre and post agriculture? 
Uh, as I said, just a brief example, um, people are applying different methods to try to make inferences about the number of gene flow events. Coolveem et al. found uh, estimated six. Mondel et al. recently have used machine learning to estimate additional uh, events of interbreeding. And these ghost populations also become quite intriguing. Um, what else do we need to know and how do we proceed? Well, who were the Denisovans? What's their range? Um, were there additional archaic hominins that contribute ancestry? And how do we detect this? Uh, Katerina Dudka and others are applying zoological, uh, zooarchaeology by mass spectroscopy to try to identify what species little fragments are at archaeological sites and then use the DNA to gain further information, particularly in places where ancient DNA is harder to come by, but also full-size remains are hard to come by. Um, other questions relate to the adaptive legacy, and in particular related to complex traits. So a lot of the low-hanging fruit of simple traits has you know, been looked at, but of course you know, more complex traits like cognition uh, are of great interest, and even epigenetic analyses. And we can make inferences about epigenetics based on the damage patterns in the DNA. This is work by David Gockman in Laurent uh, Carmel's lab. And this has, uh, intriguingly, in a paper that's been submitted, highlighted the vocal tract and face as having major differences between modern humans and archaic humans. Um, finally, where and to what extent are we expected to find pathogens in archaeological material? You know, pathogens hang out in different parts of the body. So there's a lot of pathogens we're never going to learn about from ancient DNA because they just don't hang out in the bones or the teeth. Uh, what are the population dynamics through time? How do we understand the microbiome and its changes? And that's, I think, a very intriguing area of research. And we're learning that there are major differences, perhaps based on diet. But we know, for example, that rural populations and first world populations have quite different gut microbiomes. And meanwhile, here are the apes. And so why are these ecologies different? And what's the functional importance there? Uh, so for example, the red complex in humans has been related to periodontal disease. But it's also quite common in other apes. This is my postdoc who's been working on this. And so what does this mean in terms of, you know, do we see the same type of evidence in um, other human populations as well as our closest relatives? And how do we look at this both over time and across different populations? So work in science, of course, is done with big teams. And so I have to thank my laboratory and funders and you for your attention. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.